Let's go to prayer. Father, Lord, we come to you and we thank you that indeed you've made a way through your son, Jesus. Lord, a, a, a means to, to come into fellowship with you. John is going to lay this out in his letter to his readers of what it means that you, O oh Lord, are the light. That you, the one who has fellowship, intimacy with your Son and with the Holy Spirit, is allowed us to enter into that fellowship. Why? Because of Christ, your Son. So, Father, open our eyes to the text. Thank you for your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 1, the text that has been read. And if you are just joining us, we are journeying through John's first letter recorded in the latter part of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 5. Many of you know that I had the opportunity to live in Aberdeen, Scotland, for a couple years. And recently, Aberdeen was voted Britain's most which is Britain's most northerly city, it was labeled the most miserable place to live in the UK. <laughs> there's a reason for that, and there's, well, two, actually. One is the rain. 20 to 24 days out of a month, it rains in Aberdeen. The second is in the winter months, which is further north than Moscow, the, the days are very short. In fact, a recent British Journal of Psychiatry stated Aberdeen this again, this winter will be gripped with SAD, you know, seasonal affective disorder. They say up to one out of every five civilian citizens of Aberdeen will struggle with symptoms of, during the winter months. They'll put on more weight. That was my excuse. Need more sleep. Find it difficult to get up in the morning, etc. <laughs> one of the doctoral students at Aberdeen dedicated his dissertation to the weather. <laughs> Light is important physically, it's also important spiritually. And John, as he writes this letter, wants to tell again his audience, remind them of what it means that God has fellowship with the Son and we enter that fellowship. We saw that in the prologue. Remember in verse 3, you have fellowship with us. If you receive the message I've declared, that fellowship is fellowship that the Father and the Son have. And so he expounds on this here in the, in the letter, and he says, now this is the gospel message we have heard from him. Now, who's the him? That's Christ. This is the one he saw. This is the one he touched. This is the one he heard. He reiterated those earlier on in the prologue, the beginning of this letter, and he mentioned that, of course, in his gospel and he says, we have heard from him. And again, that echoes back. We've already seen this twice. We saw it in verse 1. We've seen it in verse 3. He reiterates, we've heard this, this message. And he says, and we announce it to you, a phrase he's already used twice. He's using it again to you, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. John is faithful. He, the message he's received He's wanting to make sure that it's passed on to those. Again, there's an affection with this audience. We don't know exactly who, but we know again in chapter 2, verse 1, he refers to them as my little children, a verse we're going to look at today. But he says, God is light. 
Now, this is not a foreign concept if you understand Old Testament and New Testament theology. Time and time again in the Old Testament, God is referred to as light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 36, in your light we see light. Later when we get to the New Testament, Simeon holds baby Jesus. And in Luke 2, what does he declare? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared for the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Jesus himself will declare that he is the light. And he states it twice in John's gospel. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So what does that mean, that God is light? Let me give you three things to include in your notes. Uh, the test will be at the business meeting. So number one, light symbolizes God's radiance, his glory. Psalm 104, God wraps himself in light of garments. 1 Timothy 6, he alone possesses immortality, that is God, and lives in an unapproachable light. I mean, think about the Old and New Testament. Where do you see God in light? The Shekinah glory, right? And then in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. Where do you see light in the New Testament? It's when Jesus is, is magnified in all his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. His, his face shines like the sun, according to the gospel writers. And so you see this light symbolizing the Lord's radiance. It also symbolizes his revelation. It, it's, it's revealing who he is. And, and I will argue how we are to live or to respond. In other words, light exposes the truth. Never clean a house at nighttime. <laughs> right? You can't see all the dust. And when you have your guest over, make sure not all the lights are on. So you get the idea. Go with candlelight. It looks so nice and romantic anyways. Right? And, and the incarnation was so important, and that's what John has already highlighted, is that the light entered the world. He mentions this in his first chapter of John's Gospel. That Jesus came as light into the dark world to reveal the truth, the way, and the life. So light for God, that is, God is light, shows his radiance, it speaks of his revelation, but it also indicates his holiness. Light symbolizes purity, perfection. And notice what John states, in him, there in chapter 1, verse 5, no darkness at all. There is no imperfections in this light. So John makes this declaration as he enters into the content, really the body of the letter. And in so doing, he, he, he's anticipating three objections. Some would say these are actually being stated among the community that John is writing. But clearly we're going to see three points that supposedly the, the other side is making. And I've put them in your notes as false claims, and then John will counteract with the truth. And so let's look at these. The first is found in verse 6. Here's the false claim. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet keep walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So what do we see here? We see a group of believers, or so, let me, so-called believers, who say, yeah, I can have fellowship with God, but I 
you look at their life and it's all in the dark. <laughs> their life is filled with sin. Uh, it, it does not compute. It's strange that anyone would want to walk in the darkness. Remember the little ditty from Shel Silverstein in his poem, Batty. The baby bat screamed out in fright, turn on the dark, I'm afraid of the light. Yes, you get the idea. It, 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 darkness for many is fearful. Nyctophobia is very common. In fact, they estimate 11% of Americans are afraid of the dark. Uh, three out of every four kids. However, when it comes to spiritual darkness, men and women seem to gravitate towards it. They love it like the little bat in Batty. John 3, a text we read, heard read to us earlier. Now this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world, that is Christ, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light, does not come to the light, so their deeds will not be exposed. It's like cockroaches with lights on. They don't want the light on. They scurry into the woodwork. Why? Because darkness provides a place to hide. It's a, a place where I don't need to stand convicted by the radiance of God's glory. It's no wonder Scripture uses the image of darkness time and time again in the Old and the New Testament as a means of, of, of the realm of ignorance, the realm of calamity, the realm of death, the realm of wickedness, and the realm of condemnation. God is light. And the truth is, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 2, a text that we also just heard. But you are a chosen race who's called you out of darkness into light. I must confess, this has been a, a difficult week as I've studied the text because I, for some reason, always under, thought, okay, if you can be in the light, but you're walking in the darkness. No, 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 this isn't about sanctification. This isn't about being set apart, becoming holy. This is about justification being declared right. Either you're in the dark or you're in the light. You can't be in both. And as we work through this, it, it's clear what he's saying here, what John is highlighting. The individual who claims to walk or in fellowship with the Lord but toys with darkness has no walk with the Lord. It means abiding in death by rejecting God's message. Why? Because darkness is the absence of light. What, what did the text tell us? In God is light, there is no darkness. I'm reminded of the blind man in John chapter 9. It's a powerful scene. In fact, keep your finger here. Turn back to John 9. You have to look at John's gospel as you study this letter because the two go hand in hand. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So turn to John 9. It's one of my favorite scenes in the life of Christ. If you remember, a man was born blind. And of course, the disciples asked who sinned. And the Lord said, he didn't sin or the parents. He was born blind so that God could be glorified. And in this scene, Jesus heals him. The blind man does not know who Jesus is. In fact, there will be three occurrences where the man comes to understand who truly Jesus is. He was blind, now he sees. 
the ones who should see, metaphorically, the religious rulers, three times will deny who Jesus is, demonstrating they're truly in the dark or blind. Notice what Jesus says, and we'll start at verse 35. The, the blind man, <clears throat> Jesus finds him, which I love. Verse 35, Jesus heard they had thrown him out. So they've excommunicated, the religious rulers have excommunicated this, this man who's had his eyesight restored. Think about that one for a minute. He found the man and said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man replied, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe? And Jesus told him, you have seen him. He's the one speaking with you. Wow, the, the music's starting here, right? This is awesome. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. He's the first person to worship Jesus, recorded there in John's gospel. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world, so that those who do not see may gain their sight, and the ones who may see may become blind. Blindness is reserved for those who are dwelling in darkness. And sadly, similar to the religious rulers in the first century, some of John's readers said, Oh yes, I'm spiritual, I'm religious. And John said, No, 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 you're not of the light. Because <laughs> you don't do those things. That, that's not characterized, characterizing a believer. I wrote down, you can look like a lamp, you can have a cord, a switch, a socket, and even be plugged into an outlet. But if there's no bulb screwed, screwed in, you're not going to participate in the light. You kind of laugh, but I mean, you could be born in the church, you can participate in the church, you can go to the services, you can sing hymns, you can give money, but if you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior, that has come, I mean, that is, you've come to a point where you've recognized you're a sinner, there's crud in your life. That's keeping you from fellowshipping with the Lord. And, and, and you need to call on him and save you from your sins. If you've not done that, you're not in the light. You're like the religious rulers. You're truly blind. John is clear. There is no middle ground. I mean, can you imagine driving a car? On one side of the bumper is go Purdue, and the other is IU. Hey, you look schizophrenic. No one would, yeah, it's nuts like going to a Republican rally wearing a pro-Democrat shirt. You don't do that, right? They don't mesh. Light and darkness do not mesh. You cannot be a quasi-Christian, wear a Christian veneer, or attempt to be Switzerland. Either you're walking in darkness, or you're not, where you're not having a relationship with Christ, or you're in the light. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, what communion has light with darkness. Notice what John says. If we walk in the light, and I love this phrase, do not miss the next one, as he himself is in the light. In other words, if you're in the light, you're right there with Jesus. <laughs> you're in that fellowship that the Father and the Son have, which he highlighted there earlier in chapter 1, in verse 3. But he says, not only that, we have fellowship, watch this, with one another. Wow. You're brought into the family of God. The big C. It's not just us. It's all the churches that are preaching the gospel here on the north side of Indy. Praise the Lord for them. It, 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 and it's not just here. It's across the United States. It's not just here. It's across the, the Atlantic. It's across the Pacific. All those who claim the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, we are brought into fellowship. 
It's not just that. Notice what it says. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from, here it is, all sin. This is why it's a soteriological issue. He's dealing with, I mean, the, the justification matter, being declared righteous. You've been cleansed if you're part of the light. And I love John here, that he, the cleansing aspect. Notice what it stems from. It's not how good we are, how magnanimous I am. No, no, it comes from Christ's sacrifice. Notice the, the text. What cleanses us? The blood, which is symbolic frequently in the New Testament of the sacrifice Christ made on the cross. His death. One commentator writes, to say that the blood of Jesus purifies us is to say that our sin is removed and forgiven. Its defiling effect no longer condemns us in the sight of God. You're brought into the light. I love the old hymn. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. You know this hymn, power in the blood. Would you over evil of victory win? That's wonderful power in the blood. Verse 2 says, would you be wiser, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in the life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Wow. And so, you ask, well, he says here, if we walk in the light, well, how, how do we walk in the light? Well, the immediate context here is that we, we need to repent of our sins and accept Jesus as our Savior. We need to be cleansed through what Christ accomplished on the cross so that we can be brought into the light. That's what we call justification, being declared right. There is an element, though, I understand this, as we look at this text of sanctification, and that means being set apart. Justification, you're declared righteous before God. Now we're starting on a journey, and this is what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. For you were one time, listen to what he says, in darkness, but now you're in light in the Lord. Live like children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Justification is the ongoing, it's the call for us to, to be brought into the light. And those who've responded to Christ's death on the cross are brought into the light and now are called to live accordingly. And that's why John says, you can't claim to be over here and be doing that over there. It doesn't mesh. So that's the, the first counterclaim that he gives. You got a group that says, ah, I'm in fellowship, but it has no difference in how they live their lives. You got another group. Notice in verse 8, this group. It says, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This second claim is stating, no, I, 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 I really don't have any sin. It doesn't mark my life. Have you met folks like that? You share the gospel? And I, I have no need of that. I, I'm fine. <laughs> the grammatical construction is clear that it, it, we're speaking here of a state. That is, my life isn't characterized by sin. 
I call this spiritual narcissism. Because the idea is, well, I'm not a murderer. I, I, I'm not some robber. You know, I, I'm not served as a dictator. I'm okay. <laughs> Reminds me of, you know, Johnny and George are playing in the sandbox, and George whips out his toy truck and wallops Johnny in the head. And you go, Johnny, don't, you know, George, don't do that. I forget which one. George, Johnny, don't do that. Oh, it's no big deal. Oh, yes, it's a big deal. The caution, because darkness of sin is a realm of deception and a rationalization of our wrong. The grammatical construction here is so clear. It's a, a, an attitude that is deliberately deceptive. The problem is there is no one who's righteous. Paul states that in Romans 3. There is no, no one is righteous, only God. And there is, remember, with God, there is no unrighteousness because he's of light. So if you want fellowship with God, you have to be righteous. So how does that come? John gives us a solution to this first objection. He says in verse 9, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What's the second truth that's so gloriously spelled out by John? That is, honesty about our sin and the need for forgiveness is essential for righteousness. It's true for Christians and non-Christians. The only righteousness that can come is through Christ. And notice, that comes by confessing, verse 9, our sins. This isn't praying a lovely prayer. Confession is not about some pious excuse or trying to impress God. In fact, notice, it's not even confessing our neighbor's sins. Because what does it say? If we confess our sins. <laughs> you know, there's no passing the buck. True confession here is naming sin, calling it by name what God calls it. It's an, you might say it's an agreement with God on how, how he assess our actions and our thoughts. It's taking ownership and recognizing that our crud is an affront to a holy God. And you say, such an affront that in verse 7, it costs the blood of his son. Puritan Richard Sibbs referred to confession as verbal humiliation. And I love what John highlights here. If we confess our sins, notice how he describes the Lord. He is faithful, and I love this, righteous. Proverbs 28, if we confess and forsake our sins, we shall find mercy. And Micah 7 says, Who is God like you who forgives sins and pardons the rebellion of your people? He will forgive. He, he, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that forgiveness and that righteousness allows us to come to the Father and enter into the fellowship. 2 Corinthians 5 is a very powerful text. Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, we plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin, Christ, to be sin for us, so that in him, listen to this, we would become the righteousness of God. It's the only means. It's the only means to be brought in. We have to be righteous. And how can we be righteous? Through the blood of Jesus and confession there found in verse 9. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all right unrighteousness. You say, well, I've done that. Bahafidus, I still struggle. <laughs> I, I, I made that confession. I belong to him, but I, I keep struggling with sin. Well, you sound a lot like Paul in Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't always do. What I shouldn't do, I sometimes do, right? And what's the solution? He gives it in Romans 8, the next chapter. It's the dwelling of the Spirit and leaning on the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and with that comes an ongoing confession. Brian Chapel writes, Remorse for sin does have a place in the Christian life, but we should be very sure what function it serves. Guilt should drive us to the cross, but grace must lead us from it. Guilt makes us seek Christ, but gratitude should make us serve him. Guilt should lead us to confession, but without a response of love as the motive of renewed obedience, true repentance never matures. This is where John's heading in this letter. He says, if you're here, if you're walking in the light, you don't go back to that. Your life should be marked out of love. It's not about do's and don'ts. That's not Christianity. That's a religion. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's, it's a love and an intimacy with the Father and the Son because you've been brought into that fellowship that they have. Well, this is so powerful here that John is highlighting. Well, he's not done because there's a third claim he wants to dispel. He's blew up number one. He blew up number two. Now he gets to three. And three is found in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. And you say, well, Hophidus, that sounds a lot like objection number two. How do you distinguish those? Well, two is speaking of a state, a quality. In other words, that group is saying, my life isn't marked by sin. That's not how I'm characterized. Number three is saying, I have never sinned. There is no pre-existing condition. Yet again, Romans 3 is very clear. No one is righteous. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is the truth claim? Notice what he says here. My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And we have one who is the atoning sacrifice. I wrote as the truth claim, understanding God's role in light of our sin is essential for a reverential awe of God. Look at the, look at the three false claims. What's the first one doing? <laughs> the, the, the first one is just plain out lying to those around us. It's, it's hypocritical. The second one, he says you're deceiving yourselves, so now you're lying to yourselves. And notice the third accusation. What's the third? You've made God now a liar. So you, you see the problem with all three of these. And with the third, the claim impugns God's character. God has stated all of humanity has sinned. So either you're telling the truth or God's telling the truth. And if I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet on the Lord. Sorry, I think he's probably got this right. Romans 3, 9, and 10 is stated again. There is no one righteous. Repeat it again. God's forgive sins would be pointless. I mean, think about this. Why send your son to a cross if we didn't need a Savior? <laughs> Why did he die on a cross then? Why do we mess with this? 
Why send him to earth to have his diapers changed by human beings if, if, I mean, why mess with the incarnation? I love John because he says, my little children. He brings us in here, his audience. And he says, I'm writing these things so that he knows you're going to sin. That's why we've confessed and become a follower of Jesus. But he also knows as a follower of Jesus, you're still dealing with the old self. Yes, you've died to the enslavement of sin, but the presence is still there. And, and at times it's tempting to go back and do the things of the darkness. And he said, you can't do that. This isn't a license for sin, but it's a realistic understanding that we are saved by grace. And that promise continues. Look at the solution that he gives in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. It's not found in the church. It's not found in society. It's not found within yourselves. It's found in Jesus. Notice what he says. We have an advocate. And, and look what he says about the advocate. Don't miss this. This is worth coming today, waking up. Look what he says. He is with the Father. We have an inside track. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 1, the Father and the Son are intimate, and we get to be brought right into that because we have an advocate. We're granted the fellowship. Hebrews 8, we have such a high priest, the writer states, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, has set up. Wow. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, he takes our prayers and transmits and transforms them and passes them on to the throne of God. He adds to our feeble, unworthy prayers the incense of his own blessedness, his glorious, perfect person, so he represents us in that way. He's our advocate with the Father, and how can he do that? The text, he highlights this, he is the righteous one. Don't miss that. He is the, the righteous one. He's capable and he's all-powerful. Hebrews 7, For indeed, fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he has no need to do every day what the priest used to do. He is there. And, and it's, his, his, it's his righteousness that we bear which allows us to come into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Father. Jesus, notice, Jesus isn't asking God to overlook our sin. Don't miss this. Or to forget it. <laughs> Jesus stands there and he states to the Father, I took care of it with my blood. That's our Savior. Amen. I mean, check your pulse. I mean, this should excite you. Your socks should roll up and down when you hear this. It, it's verse 7, because of the blood of Jesus that allows us. And it's ongoing that he serves as our advocate. And he's not done. John says, not only is he our advocate in verse 2, in some English translations, it says propitiation. There's a 50-cent word. What does that mean? Well, it's been defined as the turning away of the wrath of God because he, his offer has been made. And the offer, of course, is Jesus. To appease the wrath was not out of vengeance, but out of justice. And notice John highlights several things about him being our propitiation. 
He is our atonement here, Romans 3. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on, God publicly displayed him at his death at the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. It begs the question, doesn't it? If because of the death of Christ, God is satisfied, then what does the unbeliever do to try to satisfy God? There's nothing you can do. God has accomplished all of it in Christ. He is our advocate. He is our propitiation. And by the way, for those of us in the room that have claimed Christ as our Savior, you, you do nothing to earn God's favor. You're not... <laughs> the danger here is, is that, well, I have to do X, Y, Z now. It, it, we fall into a legalistic trap, and we need to be very, very careful. He is there. He has made atonement. Secondly, we see here is his sacrifice is sufficient. Notice the text says, for all, all our sins. I wrote, what consolation, what comfort in knowing, what assurance, what confidence. I rely on Christ, what he has done, and what he is doing. Now think about this. We need no one thing. We need nothing else. We need nothing apart from Christ. And because of Christ, we have access and fellowship to the Father, and we're part of the light. Wow. It's huge. And third, notice what he says. And not only that was this atoning sacrifice for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The phrase whole world is used in chapter 5, verse 19, and it refers to the entire human race. The death of Christ pays for the sins of all people. But hear me out. One individual, or an individual, has to settle the account by believing. In other words, I could give out checks that's going to pay for all of your college education. Join the government. No. Um, give, give out checks to everyone's tuition, right? But if you don't accept the check, it's invalid. And I would argue Christ has paid the price so that you can have a relationship with him, but you must respond and embrace coming through confession and, and accepting this one. Oswald Chambers, the quote at the bottom of your notes, forgiveness is the divine miracle of grace. It cost God the cross of Jesus Christ before he could forgive sin and remain a holy God. When once you realize all that it costs God to forgive you, you will be held as in a vice, constrained by the love of God. God is light. And this light inv invites us to join in his presence. And it, that invitation can only be accessible by means of admitting that, yes, his son, Jesus, shed his blood for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be cleansed, and that you could be declared righteous. For those of you who do not know Jesus as your Savior, today is the day to begin the journey. Don't be like some of the readers 
that John is writing to who, who've lied about their spirituality. Oh yeah, I, I know that Jesus stuff. They've lied to themselves and deceived that they, they think they're righteous or good enough. Or they just flat out lied to everyone <laughs> and they've insulted God that he's a liar. And so this morning, what do you do with Jesus? He is the one who invites you to come, who invites you to allow him to serve as your advocate and your propitiation. Wow. For those of us who are in the light, you've made that profession in Jesus and you belong to him. Then let, me, let me challenge you with three different things this morning. As I was thinking about this last, this week, and, and what does that mean that we are children of light is there an area in your life that you need to confess and turn over to the Lord? Your failure to live as children of light hinder your fellowship with the Lord and others. Don't forget that. <laughs> and for John, it's very stark. It's either dark or light. Next week, we're going to look at, he goes, either you hate your brother or you love your brother. There is no middle ground for John. So either you belong to Christ or you don't. You, and Jesus even said, you cannot serve two masters. So what do you do with Jesus? If you're a follower of him, if you're walking as children of light, then is there an area that you just need to, to turn over to the Lord and say, yeah, this is not what should be, as Paul highlights in Ephesians 5. Or, as walking as children of the light, is your life laced with grace for the incredible lengths that the Lord has gone for you? You know, in verse 4 of chapter 1, John talked about the joy that comes knowing you're in the fellowship. Is there joy? Is gratitude just oozing out of your pores? This is our Savior. Look what he's done. So let me challenge you. Spend each day this week just thanking the Lord for who he is and that he is your advocate and that he is your propitiation. Or if you want to use atoning sacrifice, that's fine. Third, is your walk as children of light laced with incredible confidence knowing that we have a faithful and righteous advocate? You say, well, how do I know I have confidence in the presence of the Lord? Well, examine your prayer life. Is there confidence? Is there power? Is there worship and passion in your prayers? Or are they rather anemic? Bless this food, Lord. Thank you. We go. It, is it passively prayed? Is there little expectation? One of our congregants shared with me that, I think it was the mother, so forgive me if I'm wrong, they said their grandmother just accepted the Lord at 90-some years of age. They said, we have been praying for all these years that she would come to know Jesus. I was talking with another person. They said, yeah, my, my grandmother is 95 and she doesn't know Jesus and I'm, I don't know. We have an advocate. And, and we are called to come with confidence, with power in this one. And so how's your prayer life? That's whether you can determine, I would argue, if you have the confidence in knowing this is our advocate. This is the one who goes before us. And so this morning, are you children of the light or children of the darkness? You don't want to dwell in the dark. 
That's the realm of condemnation. That's the realm of being severed from the fellowship with the Father. But if you're the light, oh, embrace it. Enjoy it. It's like Aberdeen in the summertime. Light, 24 hours. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the glorious truths nestled here in John 1, 5 through 2, 2. Lord, we are reminded, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, to the lengths that you have gone to bring us into fellowship with you. And so, Father, we thank you. Forgive us when we don't live accordingly. Forgive us for ingratitude or, or growing a little numb and, and forgetting the power, the privilege that we have to come into your very throne room because an advocate is serving right now on our behalf, an advocate who gave his own blood and who allowed us to be seen as righteous because of him. So, Father, thank you. And for those who have not known that joy, who are, haven't been brought into that fellowship, and perhaps they're sitting here this morning, Father, I pray that you, your spirit would work in their lives. Lord, open their eyes to the light. Help them to see what is true and the joy that comes from knowing your Son as our Savior. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.